you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jim Salakrup, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And uh, just before we get started, I want to just mention that I know I've been promoting this episode on Facebook and, and Instagram and such as Craven's Last Hunt. But as I was, uh, as I was editing this, a couple things happened. Uh, one, I realized this episode's going to go long because we talk a lot about a lot of stuff. Uh, so I want to split it in, in two. And then the second thing is that I haven't been able to quite schedule my interview with J.M.D. Mateus. And uh, as you know, he wrote Craven's Last Hunt, and I really want to get that interview in before I release the Craven's Last Hunt part of this uh, epic collection. So what I'm going to do is this episode's going all the way up to the wedding. It's going to deal with um, the Craven's Last Hunt epic collection, but it's only going to go up to the wedding, and I'm saving the actual six-part Craven story for, um, it'll be the end of October. I already have the date scheduled with JMD Mateus. We just have to wait a little bit longer. So bear with me, and we will get to that one. But first, please enjoy the rest of this epic collection, because there's still a whole year's worth of Spider-Man to talk about. So here you go. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Spider-Man, Episode 17, Craven's Last Hunt, covering a period of The Amazing Spider-Man from 1986 to 1987. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your Spider-Man host, Adam Chapman. Yeah, so we have a fantastic volume, and I, we should say right off the bat that this is not just covering the story Craven's Last Hunt. This is going to cover probably about a year leading up to Craven's Last Hunt. There is a lot of material in this book. Um, Adam, why don't you tell us, what are we going to be talking about in this episode today? Well, this is, this is a lot of stuff. So, I mean, you have, uh, you have, what, six issues of Amazing Spider-Man. You have two annuals from Amazing Spider-Man. You have a Spider-Man versus Wolverine one-shot. You have, what, four issues of Web of Spider-Man and two issues of Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. So you're really cutting a swath of, across uh, Spider-Man from 86 to 87. You're, whereas some of these volumes will get, like, longer stretches, this is much more like you have crossovers, you have other uh, stories which are really important to the narrative flow. So you, you've got a lot going on here. Yeah, I would say that this is not your typical epic collection that just collects um, the, the main title from start to finish. There is, uh, yeah, like you said, there are a couple of different crossovers here and one-shots or whatever. The, the narrative flow, like you said, is very important to this volume. And it's also important to the last volume. And in fact, the last few volumes leading up to this volume because the, the, the whole resolution of the Hobgoblin story that has been building up for years has, uh, is coming to a conclusion right here in this book. I mean, whether or not it's satisfactory is a whole different story. But yes, <laughs> yeah, right. 
<laughs> it does come to a conclusion for a while. This is true. Yes. Wow, yeah. And, and to mix it in there, we have the wedding of Mary Jane and Peter Parker and a couple of uh, kind of silly little stories in between and built, paving the way to what is one of the greatest, uh, most highly acclaimed Spider-Man stories of all time, Craven's Last Hunt. It's an interesting volume because, I mean, of course they were always going to call it Craven's Last Hunt. You yeah. couldn't not have that storyline in the volume and call it that. But there are some other alternatives that I would have accepted, like, you know, the Hobgoblin Revealed or The Wedding. You know, like, it's interesting that, like, sandwiched in and around, you know, one of the biggest storylines of all time for Spider-Man, you have things that changed his continuity in a way that Craven's Last Hunt didn't. That's um, true. You have the wedding, which transformed that character for 20 years. You have, you know, the the botched kind of conclusion of the Hobgoblin saga, which definitely, you know, had a pall over what the Hobgoblin was for years. It also internally, uh, behind the scenes, really had, you know, there was a lot of things going on, monkeying around. So, like, there's so much going on here. So, obviously, it only gets overshadowed by Craven's Last Hunt. Yeah. But it's hard to underscore the importance of what else is going on here. Well, we are going to talk about the importance of what's going on here in this episode. And um, so can you tell me, Adam, what are some of the things that we need to know before jumping into this book? Uh, okay, well, it's not really, they don't do much with it. But I mean, technically speaking, Spider-Man's kind of cohabitating with Black Cat. Like, she doesn't have a place of her own. They mentioned it a couple times. But it's quickly done away with because... Jim Shooter and Stanley decided they're going to get married, and we're going to see very roughly how that happens very quickly yeah. <laughs> to these characters that really shouldn't be getting married. Other than that, there's not really a lot you need to kind of know going in. You need to know that the Hobgoblin's been around. You need to know that you know he's in the last year or so has really been part of like you know gang wars. Um, he's had an alliance with the Rose. Um, we're just coming off of a big gang war, which would be in a pre um, uh, immediately preceding volume. Uh, to this when eventually it comes out. So you have a big gang war that happens. Uh, Daredevil does some shady business that Spider-Man doesn't trust him really anymore, at least for a little while. So like a lot of stuff has just happened, but you really just need to know the Hobgoblin's out there. We're not really sure who he is. Flash Thompson's on the run because he was suspected of being the Hobgoblin. You've got the Rose, who we find out is Richard Fisk, the son of the Kingpin. There's a, there's a lot kind of going on, but at the same point, you can kind of jump in without feeling that lost. Like They catch you up pretty quickly. Yeah, and you should also know that at this point, Spider-Man's still in the black costume, but it's not an it's not an alien. In case any of you were hoping to see some alien symbiote costume, uh, that's not the case in this book here. That he's he's done away with that. The alien is safely protected in Reed Richards' uh, container in the Four Freedoms Plaza. <laughs> safely protected, it'll never get out. And actually, uh, <laughs> I have I have to uh, object with you there. Okay, um, he's. He's uh he's already escaped. Um, because if you look at it, Web of Spider-Man 29 is in here. It's Web of Spider-Man, I believe, 17, where retroactively that's the first uh you know time that the Venom tries to push Spider-Man in front of a of a train car. So technically speaking, I believe the symbiote is on the loose. Oh, okay. Um, we just don't yeah. know anything about it. Great. Okay. Well, thanks for clarifying that. But still, we don't get to see any of that in this volume. In fact, we probably won't even see that in the previous volume because they probably won't put that Web of Spider-Man issue in this Epic Collection series, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, I can't imagine, but it, if anything, they wouldn't put the issue. They would just put the panel. Yeah. Yeah. 
Before we head over over to the uh, the review uh, section of this episode, let's talk about some uh, mail that we got here. Jared says, I really wish that they had left out the Iron Man of the Future Annual out of Craven's Last Hunt epic, <laughs> and that way there would have been room for the spectacular Spider-Man Annual with Peter and Mary Jane's Honeymoon. Oh well, it's a great book. Yeah, that's an interesting exclusion, to be honest. Um, and, and that happens a lot where many places you'll see the wedding reprinted and they just kind of pretend that the honeymoon didn't happen and uh it's kind of and it's even more jarring here i think because you have them get married and the next issue is craven's last hunt yeah like i think having a a little bit of a palate cleanser being able to enjoy their newfound you know couplehood and being married may not have been the worst idea from a narrative perspective i guess they just couldn't justify the page count and they couldn't put the annual in the previous issue but it is interesting that we have two amazing spider-man annuals in this one volume that's that's a lot well i'm sure they must have um they must not have been able to put this first annual annual 20 in the previous volume now an interesting point um if we've been around the marvel masterworks forum for a long time when this book was originally solicited the, that spectacular Spider-Man annual with the honeymoon was in, was in it. It was included oh, really? in the listing. They were going to put it in, but the discussion in the forum made the case that the two Web of Spider-Man issues that sum up the end of the Rose's story should be there instead of the honeymoon one because it closes the narrative that when you have all of the epics all in a row, that conclusion to the Rose's story needs to be there. Well, that I agree with completely. That yeah. is true. So Jeff, I think it was Jeff who uh, who took that into account and listened to the people on the forum and made the decision to include those two issues of Web of Spider-Man and remove the honeymoon story in the end. I mean, it's it's the right call. And, you know, it's interesting. And we'll get into it when we talk about, you know, when the Hobgoblin gets revealed. The Web of Spider-Man issues are the superior stories anyway. Yeah. Um, they're much better told and much more gripping. So it's, you know, I'm happy they're here. And it, again, it's, it's interesting because, again, you have this closing a narrative beat from a different book. Like, a, you know, like it wasn't even really what Web of Spider-Man was about doing. It was about Amazing Spider-Man's story. Yeah. And so you have Web comes in and cl- concludes it and then, again, gets thrown right into a crossover as Craven's Last Hunt. Like, it's it's such an interesting and fascinating period in terms of what's actually going on publishing-wise to look at which issues are being published when. I mean, even in the uh, the notes here, they even mentioned, well, you got to read this one first and then this. Do we know <laughs> what we're doing? Not really. Like, <laughs> Right. Well, actually, funny you should mention that. I So I got to talk to Jim Salakrup recently, and uh, yesterday, in fact, and, and we had a great conversation about all things Spider-Man, and he actually explains his philosophy on how he dealt with publishing the stories in Spider-Man and Spectacular and Web of Spider-Man. So I'll play a clip from that here. Uh, I uh, grew up when uh, there was just uh, one uh, new Spider-Man title, uh, one a month. And, uh, you know, maybe during the summer there'd be an annual. Spider-Man was uh, very much like a soap opera. One issue would lead directly into the next, and uh, I I like that. And uh, I was never crazy about multiple new Spider-Man titles. Uh, I always felt there should just be one. So one of the things I tried to do was uh, a couple of times with uh, starting with Craven's Last Hunt is, is just have the stories go from one title right into the next one. Right. Um, and so was there a hierarchy of titles? Like, um, 
uh, were they all kind of treated equal or was like Amazing Spider-Man was like the flagship and big things happened there? It's all a matter of uh, opinion, really. I mean, I guess that's probably how they they uh, looked at it previously. But when I took over, I mean, I really didn't like that. Uh, I, it's almost like they were taking the Amazing uh, Spider-Man title and if I remember correctly, because it's now been some time. <laughs> it has, yes. It, it, yeah, it was almost as if, you know, they would have one title would be uh, focused on uh, his life at the Daily Bugle. Another title might be his personal life. Another one uh, might be his, uh, his college life. Uh, or and, and it seemed like he had a different girlfriend in each series and <laughs> right. I, I i just i just didn't like it at all i i thought it was uh you know the wrong way to go every you know every it's not that i'm right you know it's just everyone you know has their own approach to doing things so yeah i'm sure that was a valid uh intelligent approach uh you know for the other editors who who prefer to do things that way and but for me you know all i can think of is like say a classic sitcom the mary tyler moore show and uh it was so popular that they kept spinning off you know character after character you know the chorus leachman uh character got her own show you know phyllis uh the uh, valerie harper character got the uh, rhoda there was a lou grant show it's just <laughs> oh, yeah toward the remaining seasons of the Mary Tyler Moore show, I, I, I think it really hurt the show. You, you, you were, they, she was losing some of the, the strongest characters. It worked as an ensemble. You know, this would have been unthinkable, but it's like as if the X-Men, when it was successful, you know, there's been lots of spinoffs, but all the characters stay <laughs> still right. in the X-Men, the, you know, the main title, you know. So, yeah, Wolverine could be in his own book, but he was still in the X-Men. So I, I just, you know, I, I so I wanted all that back in in each of the Spider-Man titles. So there was a sense of no one Spider-Man title was more important than the other. You know, my feeling about it was there was just one Spider-Man, one Peter Parker. You know, uh, contrary to now, there's a Spider-Verse, but uh, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but clones aside, uh, you know, I, I wanted there to be a sense that if you were a Spider-Man fan and you picked up any Spider-Man comic, I didn't care if it was web, spectacular, amazing, you were picking up a Spider-Man comic and it had the uh, you know, ongoing uh, adventures of this character. So it was a little tricky at times. And uh, again, one of the reasons for storyline like uh, Craven's Last Hunt I just didn't like the idea that you could pick up a Spider-Man comic uh, one week and Spider-Man, Peter Parker, is buried alive. Then the next week, he's fine. And he's <laughs> yeah. fighting another another villain. And, 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 and maybe there's a footnote that says, you know, this takes place before the events of last week. Or, or worse, this place takes place after. <laughs> so like it, it, it's it's oh well I guess it'll be okay yeah right <laughs> out and fighting uh, the rhino now but uh, to me it was uh, it's very important we're creating these kinds of stories uh, 
that on some level we believe in these characters and we believe this is all real and we want to treat it that way uh, as much as possible. You know, I think Stan and others, they call it, what is it, the uh, suspension of disbelief. Right. And you want, you want, you want, you're taking this fantasy concept and you want to treat it as, as, uh, you know, you got this fantasy idea, but you want to treat it as realistically as possible within, you know, the restrictions that we have. And, and so, to my mind, it was crucial that it just felt like there's just one Peter Parker, and it's, it's the same one in all the books, that one book isn't more important than the other, et cetera, et cetera. And everything I did as the editor was to try and reinforce that. So that philosophy is why we don't see Black Cat move out of Peter Parker's apartment in this collection, because that happens in a different story. And so, yeah, things like that, like the the wedding happens in Amazing Spider-Man, but the honeymoon happens in Spectacular Spider-Man. And just the way he structured Craven's Last Hunt, how it weaves through all three of the titles, that was um, unprecedented at the time, but that's uh, what he was trying to do. And um, I think Superman did this to much greater effect in the 90s during the whole Death of Superman era, where there were four Superman titles, and <laughs> each the, the whole story was, uh, it was every single week was a continuation of the story. So yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. It is. Okay, so I asked a question on Twitter, a Twitter poll. I said, if you were invited to the wedding of Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson, would you sit on the groom side? Or the bride side? A groom? Yeah, my options were the groom side, the bride side, I wouldn't go, or you can't make me choose. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, 9% of the people voted for you can't make me choose. 19% of the people said that they wouldn't go to the wedding. Um, and then 29% said the bride side. 43% said the groom side. And I would probably go with the groom side as well. I agree. Yep. With all that stuff out of the way, let's move into our issues. Alrighty. First up, we have the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 20. It's called Man of the Year. This is a very interesting story because uh, Iron Man of 2020, they call him Iron Man of 2020, but the story actually p- takes place in 2015. Um, this guy, his name is Arno Stark, a descendant of Stark who now runs the Stark Enterprises and, and has... Iron Man's armor, he needs to travel back in time to present day 1986 in order to find a kid who will eventually grow up to be a guy that's trying to blow up the city in the future. (laughs) So he needs to find that kid to get a retinal scan of that kid so he can take it to the future and stop a bomb that's going to go off that's that's key to that guy's retinal scan. (laughs) So, and and, um, where Spider-Man ends up being involved is that Spider-Man sees Iron Man basically assaulting this kid and goes to protect him. Isn't this kind of Deadpool 2? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen Deadpool 2 yet. Oh, my apologies then. That's um, okay. You know, it's interesting. This issue is not an amazing Spider-Man issue at all. I know. It's Iron Man, and it's not even the, like an Iron Man we like. <laughs> yeah. I was very, very surprised when I was reading this. It's like you get about a dozen pages in and still no Spider-Man. It was exactly an Iron Man story. 
And what's do you know what the history of this Arno guy is? Like his the publishing history? Uh, not really. I obviously this wasn't his first appearance, but I don't remember much about him to be honest. Like I know about him more because I know the name Arno Stark, and they ended up using that for um, Tony's brother in the last couple of years. But other than that, like I don't remember much about the character's kind of publishing history. All yeah. I know is that this, this story, first of all, it's an Iron Man story. Second of all, it's a complete downer. Yeah, I know. Holy cow. Well, and that's, I think, I I went into this not expecting to like it, but I actually ended up liking the the story, especially because of the ending. The ending was a surprise, a complete surprise. It's like the the bomb goes off. They the, the the whole city's destroyed. He doesn't save the day. And Spider-Man's kind of to blame for that. But, but I guess my problem with it is that you can't just do a story like that and first of all, where your protagonist is not your really your protagonist, who's barely in it. Your protagonist is now a different character who's not the star of the book. You're not gonna follow up on it. Something huge happens. Something <laughs> that you know you know, like it just feels like this is kind of like an FU. Like, what is this? Like, we're we're gonna blow up the world of the future. Yeah. We're gonna, and, and 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 it does say something to the credit of the uh, creative team that when you do kind of feel that at the very end, when you have Arno dropping to his knees, and then you have him kind of freaking out, and then you have the the computer kind of saying what the blast radius was and the kill radius, and like that's a pretty stark emotional moment but like but it, it never gets paid off anywhere there's nowhere for it to go it's just like boom depressing enjoy this hope you enjoyed your comic book kids <laughs> yeah right well i feel like it's like um an issue of like what if because what if usually ends with like the world being destroyed in, in a lot of cases um and then you never get any resolution from that too or it's like you know the age of apocalypse just the whole world gets destroyed at the end of that and boom we're back to regular continuity x-men all of a sudden um, I didn't know they revisit that and stuff like that, but that one at least is a glimmer of hope because the whole idea is that I think they succeeded. Our world's going to blow up as a result, you know. But besides the fact that we blew it up ourselves, it's also the fact that the timeline is being restored, even though that that's not how Marvel time works. But whatever, <laughs> one storyline and this one time they just kind of went for it and said this is how it works. Um, and at least that again, it felt like a closure. You got some sort of feeling. This this is just the beginning of another story of a very depressing Arno Stark story, yeah. which I don't actually want to read. But like, why put this in my Amazing Spider-Man annual? Right. Well, there must have been some reason. Maybe they were short on stories, and I don't even like the story didn't even have to include Spider-Man. I wonder if this Not was this was an inventory story that was written, yeah. and they're like, man, we need something to fill up the Amazing Spider-Man annual. Let's pull this. We need to put Spider-Man in here, so let's shoehorn him into the story. Yeah. Um. And, and there you go. It's now a Spider-Man story. Um. However, and and Spider-Man is strangely out of character. Um. With how like how harsh he really beats Iron Man. Uh, mm-hmm. In this one as well. So, yeah. There's a lot of odd things about this. Uh, I did like the ending, but yeah, very strange. Um, I, not to reference other podcasts, but on the Amazing Spider Talk podcast, they go back and forth. These two co-hosts, they both have every issue of Amazing Spider-Man ever, ever published, yep. and they kind of like to to riddle each other on the fact that do annuals count? Well, this issue is not exactly a resounding <laughs> point to say yes. Right. Um, the other annual in this book is a point towards saying the annuals count. Well, this course. one, not so much. Yeah, yeah. I um I always go into the annuals not expecting to be wowed. Especially in the in the eighties and and the, and the nineties, it's like either you get one chapter of a twenty part story, 
like Atlantis attacks and it's like I don't know what I'm reading here or you get these inventory stories or they put like the the tryout um, artists and and people like people who who they're trying to give a chance and see how they can do so they stick them on an annual story and and that's I don't know who's who's in this who did this this story here I don't even know uh, names you're not going to recognize you got uh, Ken McDonald doing the script based on an original story by Fred Schiller pencils by Mark Beecham inks by Bob Wychik and lettering by Jim Novak right so the story and the pencils are again yeah it's a a, a no name team of people who I just I guess maybe they sold this story they wrote it and sold the story to Marvel well I guess Fred Schiller did because it's based on his original story right, right. so yeah I guess he so. sold a story and I guess they, they retroactively made it work for the characters very interesting well let's uh, not spend any more time on the annual and move to some more of the meat of this book here do you want to take us through Spider-Man versus Wolverine oh god do I have to um, yes you do this 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 is a this is a rough slog some people love this book other people don't. I found that growing up, this was a book where it was talked about a lot, but more in reference to like a couple panels that were important in terms of the interactions between Wolverine and Spider-Man. Now, at the time, Spider-Man and Wolverine didn't have a lot of interaction, so maybe it meant more to people. But now that we've had you know years and years of Spider-Man Wolverine stories where they've had tons of team-ups, well, and they're, and they're both Avengers, right? Yeah, they're both Avengers. They've been together a lot. This book just feels so weird to see them, and it's not the best portrayal of either Wolverine or Spider-Man. Um, I don't know what Owsley was doing, and this is a big deal because you got you know the flagship you know mascot of the company, the most popular X-Man. We're gonna put them together. They're gonna fight, but the story is like very much set in the '80s. You're dealing with you know Berlin. Uh, you're dealing with you know the Iron Curtain. Like it just—it's a weird play, um, and feels so much of the times, which again feels much more dated now. Um, the big—the bones of the story is that you have Wolverine and his and his his, his friend Charlie, um, who he gets kind of involved in trying to protect Charlie, because Charlie does something Charlie shouldn't have done with KGB getting involved with people, and then it's just kind of a mass people trying to kill Charlie, and then Spider-Man gets involved when he ends up in Berlin as well. But he keeps being told throughout the entire time. That he doesn't really belong there. That you know he doesn't know what he's doing. Like it's a really weird read when your main character. Well, depending on what you're looking at, we're reading this in a Spider-Man collection. So Spider-Man's our main character, and the entire time he's just being denigrated, pushed down, told he's useless. Like it's rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it's um. Well, I I still uh, found some enjoyment in the story. I didn't. I don't hate it like you seem to to really hate it. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't hate it. I just find I find a lot of the characterization is off. Like, there's some cool stuff that's done well. Like, I think everything with Jameson kind of pushing Ned to you know to go overseas to pr- pursue this story that feels very much in keeping with those characters. And that part's it's played very dark, but it's over before you know it because then Ned's just dead. And then half the time it's like an afterthought that that he's killed in his apartment. But like Spider-Man spends so much other time doing other things. It's like that should be the moment that the entire world comes tumbling down like he's known this guy forever suddenly his throat is slit like that should be a much bigger deal well and but it is in the last few panels they oh no actually it's yeah it's it's spider-man killing charlie that becomes the much bigger deal here which is fine but it's just weird because again you just knocked off an important you know supporting cast member and there wasn't a lot of time given to it but then him accidentally killing someone which, you know, in and of itself, that does happen a lot with Spider-Man, where he accidentally hits someone, either he hurts them, you know, grievously or whatever. Like, this is not an uncommon theme for Spider-Man, so it's not even that unique. Like, not that many years later, there's a, 
um, a Spider-Man Scorpion story where he does the same thing. An old man kind of runs up and tries to like, you know, knife him or something. And he kind of turns around thinking it's Scorpion and just bats the guy away and really hurts him. So like, this is something that Spider-Man does. Yeah. Well, I think that each, each writer wants to sort of explore that sort of how, how Spider-Man would deal with that situation. Yeah, it's a it's a very of the moment story with like you said the the Berlin Wall hasn't fallen yet because that falls in 89 a couple years after this story. They're like sneaking across East and West Berlin um back and forth and such and but I I want to know is this is this a Wolverine story or is this a Spider-Man story? What do you think? Um I think it's a better as a Wolverine story, but again, but not enough attention is paid to Wolverine's side but I think it is because it's, it's an interesting Wolverine story it's him you know with a buddy trying to do the right thing but you know, and it's just again it's weirdly played because you keep having him kind of punking Spider-Man like Spider-Man shows up at this room and there's already a note being like you know you're too slow <laughs> like it's very <laughs> yeah. weird, weirdly comical like I, I guess part of my issue with it is that it feels like it doesn't know the tone it wants to take it's trying to be funny, but then also trying to be deathly serious. It's trying to tell deeper stories about, you know, power and responsibility. It's trying to put Peter Parker through his paces. Like, and again, it's so weird in context to understand that, like, you know, here he's he's trying to, doesn't he, in, in this issue, the one where he tries to kiss Mary Jane? And yes. It, you know, she's really super awkward about it. And, like, they're going to get married in, like, three months. Like, this is crazy. Well, but that's, they, they didn't know, the writers didn't know that they were going to get married at this point. Do you think um, Owsley didn't know? Yes. And in fact, I, um, I'll i play a clip later on in this episode about Jim uh, about Jim Salakrup talking about this. There was a incredibly short turnaround on all of that, the, whole, the way that the wedding went down. But we'll talk about that when we get to the wedding. <laughs> but at this point, Spider-Man and Mary Jane are just friends. They have both friend-zoned each other. And, uh, <laughs> and they've been that way since, like, this, that happened in DeFalco's run. Um, so they, yes. they've been that way for quite a while. Yeah, it's been about two, two years publishing time. Yeah, and, and, uh, and writers were starting to try and make um, the Peter Black Cat thing actually happen. Like they were kind of moving in that direction and seeing where that would go. So, so it is a Wolverine story because it's all about kind of Wolverine's past and the, the story revolves around Wolverine characters but nothing consequential happens to Wolverine. In fact, this person, Charlie... Well, his friend his friend dies, though. But this friend hasn't been mentioned ever before. Like, it's a friend that's out of, of the blue, and, and after that, never mentioned again. So it doesn't matter. Whereas Ned Le- Leeds dies, Peter kills somebody, which has effects on him in the future, um, in, 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 like, the next few issues in this book, even... The, the kiss with Mary Jane is the beginning of a of a storyline and uh, you know all of the character development here happens to Spider-Man in a Wolverine setting it's very strange yeah I do one thing I will say is really um, effective and very strong um, storytelling is in the last couple of pages when you just have that repeated panel of Spider-Man turning around and punching with all his might and it's just colored a sickly red uh, that kind of shows like the bloodiness the, of you know what he can really do yeah. when he's not checking himself, and the fact that they play it as many times as they do. Like I think it's what one, two, three, four times over three pages. Like it's extremely effective. It really underscores the the trauma that he's under. But again, it's weird to have him dealing with this trauma when a longtime friend has just had his neck slit. Like it's crazy. Yeah. Well, he we see Spider Man affected by that in the next issue. So yeah. 
yeah, not not this one. Like, and here's and no, I do think this is weird, and I feel like Jameson never brings it up. But like, Peter comes back to town. He hasn't even told anyone that Ned's dead. Like, that's fucked up. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah, he. That is very true. He doesn't tell anybody. You know, like, and and uh, isn't Jameson gonna ask? Like, I flew there. How did you get back? Where's Ned? Like, what's going on? Like, that's. There's just so many questions. Yeah, it, it's a it's a very weird scenario. <laughs> Jameson, yeah, he just says, "So where's Ned?" And Peter hangs up the phone, and doesn't tell him. Right? Holy, holy cow! It's cool. But that's I mean, so crazy. So, but that shows you how it did affect Peter, right? Yeah, but like more of like, but it feels like an afterthought because again, it, he had this crazy evening and crazy evening in Berlin, and it was not in on his mind at all. And now it's finally over. He's like, "Oh yeah, Ned, that guy I knew." Yeah, and you think that he would have to like answer to police and stay? He would probably be detained in Berlin for quite a while for being. It's the, it's part the room of they share. Yeah. The, the, they were supposed to share the room, and then one of them was found murdered. Like again, holy shit! Well, what can you say? I I I think um, I found enjoyment of it. I love the little plot twist. Um, I I mean, I guess the plot twist, uh, Charlie being a woman partway through because Wolverine wouldn't use any sort of pronouns. He always referred to Charlie mm. as Charlie over and over again. I'm like, that's weird. Why are they saying Charlie's name so many times? Because they didn't want to say he or she. True. Yeah. And, and like and this I mean again for years before Spider-Man and Wolverine had more frequent occasions to be in each other's company you would often see on kind of best moments list the fight between Spider-Man and Wolverine in the cemetery you know like you have Spider-Man pummeling Wolverine smashing him into the back of like you know different uh, tombstones then you have the moment where he's like I could kill him but I'd have to like you know basically crack his neck and by the time I did that he you know Wolverine's threatening to you know to, to pop his claws like that's an iconic moment that was a, that was very important for a long time that you know this is what would really happen if these two really fought yeah um, in a way that we'd never really seen before and again now we kind of take it for granted because Wolverine's fought everyone like he's been mind controlled how many times Spider-Man's fought people like it's <laughs> yeah. not as it's not as special but this is again you got to remember in 1986 this is a big deal yeah, and it's it's still a good fight in 1986 standards, especially it's uh it's great the one where Wolver uh, where Spider Man's pummeling him so hard that the tombstone behind him is cracking the the tombstone behind Wolverine's head is cracking, it's uh it's vicious. But that's like you, ha you have oh, to be vicious brutal. when you're going against Wolverine. Like that's just the way it is. And I guess that's how Spider-Man is against Iron Man in the previous issue because Iron Man's armor is supposed to be even more technologically advanced and powerful than because he comes from the future. So Spider-Man has to be brutal. Well, another another problem with that though is that the entire time he thinks he's fighting the real Iron Man. Right. Yeah. It's so true. what the hell? Well, and that's the thing is like Spider-Man at the end has no idea what's going on, and uh, <laughs> we're jumping back to the annual now. But uh, he, yeah, Arno disappears. Spider-Man doesn't know where he came from or where he's going, and has no idea what's happening in the future. Do you, do you think the next time he sees Iron Man, he's like, "Oh man, dude, I'm really sorry about that time I pummeled you." Probably. About? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or or uh, or just uh, kind of blindsides him because he thinks he's going to make the first attack. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway, let's let's keep going. Amazing Spider-Man number 289. This is uh, the Hobgoblin revealed, finally revealed after all this time. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I want to read a little bit from uh, Wikipedia. Now, I know that Wikipedia 
is shouldn't be the end all and be all of of uh, your research, but um, there's a great description of the publication history of of um, Hobgoblin that I want to read, and they are all referenced from articles from by Glenn Greenberg uh, in Back Issue Magazine, okay. and yep. what is the other reference here? Um, uh, Tom DeFalco's words from Comic Creators on Spider Man from Titan Books. So. Uh, it's all referenced. So this is, uh, I just wanted to say here, The Hobgoblin was created by Roger Stern, an artist John Romita Jr. for Amazing Spider-Man 238 in 1983. Like other writers, Stern found himself under the pressure to have Spider-Man fight the Green Goblin again, but did not wish to bring Norman Osborn or Bart Hamilton back from the dead, or have Harry Osborn become Green Goblin again, or yet create yet another Green Goblin, so he created this new Goblin. Um, blah 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 down here it says the character's identity was not initially revealed generating one of the longest running mysteries in the Spider-Man comics according to Stern I plotted that first story with no strong idea of who the Hobgoblin was as I was scripting those gorgeous pages from J.R. particularly the last third of the book and developing the Hobgoblin speech pattern I realized who he was it was Roderick Kingsley the son-of-a-bitch corporate leader I had introduced in my first issue of Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, and then it goes on to say, a handful of readers deduced that Kingsley was the Hobgoblin almost immediately, and in order to throw them off the scent, and in the same stroke provide a retroactive explanation for his inconsistent characterization of Kingsley, Stern came up with the idea of Kingsley having a brother named Daniel, who sometimes impersonates him, and sealing deception by having the Hobgoblin conspicuously appear in the same room as Daniel Kingsley in Spider-Man 249. Now, Stern's original plan was to have the mystery of the Hobgoblin's identity exactly one issue longer than that of the Green Goblin's identity, meaning that the truth would be revealed in number 264. However, Stern left the series after 251, and editor Tom DeFalco took his place. Wanting to resolve the mystery in a manner that would do justice to Stern's stories, he asked Stern who the Hobgoblin was, but then objected when Stern told him that it was Kingsley. DeFalco argued that the twin brother scheme was cheating, uh, cheating the readers, and aside from a single thought bubble, there had no, been no hint that Roderick even had a brother, much less one that it could serve as a double for him. Stern disagreed, but said that DeFalco should feel free to choose whoever he wanted to for the Hobgoblin's secret identity, reasoning that I knew that whomever Tom chose, he would make it work. So, upon reviewing the clues, DeFalco decided that Hobgoblin was Richard Fisk. So, moreover, he decided that the mystery of his identity should be prolonged as long as possible, since it was the chief element that made Hobgoblin interesting. That's partly true. The mystery becomes further complicated when James Osley came on as editor of the Spider-Man titles. Osley's relationship with DeFalco and, Ron, and artist Ron Friends was strained from the beginning, and so when Osley asked who the Hobgoblin was at a Spider-Man creators conference, DeFalco lied and said it was Ned Leeds. Then Osley wrote the one-shot one Spider-Man vs. Wolverine in which Ned Leeds is killed and instructed that spectacular, the spectacular Spider-Man writer, Peter David, to, to reveal the Hobgoblin as the Foreigner. And the Foreigner is the guy who blew up Black Cat's apartment, which is why Black Cat was staying with Spider-Man. Peter David objected and argued that the only person who fits the clues was Leeds, Ned Leeds. Having been present at the Spider-Man creator's conference, David also thought that Leeds was who DeFalco intended it to be. 
Um, and because Spider-Man and Wolverine versus Wolverine had already been drawn, however, it was too late to undo Leeds' death. Thus, the Hobgoblin's identity was revealed post-death in Amazing Spider-Man 289, a double-sized issue. With Spider-Man's then archenemy now dead, the new Hobgoblin was created from the storyline of Jason Mackendale's hatred of the Hobgoblin. <laughs> so, holy cow, it's like nobody, uh, nobody wanted to do what everybody else was doing. I think that's just, it's fascinating, the behind-the-scenes part of this, that the Hobgoblin story was, in fact, several different people's ideas. (laughs) And in fact, um, Jim Salakrup has some interesting things to say about this as well, because he had just come on as, as editor. And so I'll play a little clip of him talking about Hobgoblin's origin as well. I, I tried to talk to the, um, the previous folks, and uh, Roger Stern, I guess, had his own idea what it should be, and I was Roger's assistant at one point. And for whatever reason, you know, he, you know, chose to like, uh, you know, to stay out of it. You know, he, I, I, I respect him, and mm-hmm. he didn't want to be bothered at that particular point for for his own reasons, and that's okay. Uh, all that left, uh, who was willing to talk to me from the people who were working on these stories, was uh, Jim Owsley, who was the uh, you know previous uh, editor before mm-hmm. me. Yep. And and he said, and, and he wound up writing the story that, from everything I was uh, told, uh, this is, you know, how it was going to be under him. So uh, I just wanted to wrap it up as, uh, <laughs> you know, and. <laughs> yeah. and, and Get past it and uh, uh, you know and move on. I I I, I had a, a suspicion. No matter what anyone did, there'd be someone uh, unhappy with it. So uh, right, you know, to me it was just I didn't want to prolong it. I didn't want it to be any more convoluted than it already was. Uh, you know, let's like make a big deal out of it and end it, and uh, and, and that was that. But yeah, let's talk about this issue here. Spider-Man, a Hobgoblin revealed. And so in this one, the, it's revealed that the foreigner is hired to kill Ned Leeds. He's hired by Jason McIndale. And the, king, right. the Kingpin tries to get Spider-Man to take out the foreigner. Um, and through this all, um, the Rose, his, his empire is coming crashing down and Jason McIndale as the Hobgoblin is trying to take out the Rose. And... Flash Thompson, who was actually framed and it's on the run from the law, he's, he was framed and people think that he's the Hobgoblin, he steps in and actually saves Peter Parker and gets pretty seriously injured in the process. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a double-sized issue and it's a lot of flashback, it's a lot of exposition, yeah, it's just a lot of kind of retroactively fitting things in. And you can tell that Peter David is like trying his best to make a something out of the mess that was made in the past with this whole hobgoblin story well it's it's really interesting there's a there's a moment of dialogue on page 128 of the epic collection um when david has peter say and then i begin to see in my mind's eye things that i didn't see last time i see ned leads and then it has kind of the flashback to how ned dies now it's interesting because you know it's very easy to say that the internal narration is not actually ned's at all it's what peter is imagining that ned is thinking um, which is important because obviously Ned ends up becoming not really the Hobgoblin. Um, when you read Hobgoblin Lives, which came out, I guess, about uh, 11 years later, which is a phenomenal story and really kind of puts the pieces and, and 
and explains this kind of stuff away um, that, you know, Ned Leeds was never really the hobgoblin, but he was brainwashed into thinking he was. And the brainwashing was having a detrimental effect to the point where he was starting to think more and more that he actually was the hobgoblin. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so you can kind of actually say that the internal narration here is either what Peter is is thinking that Ned was thinking based on what he's read, or it's really just the mind, uh, you know, mind washed, um, sorry, brainwashed Ned just totally off his rocker and then attacked. And again, it's interesting because when you read this, and you, when you've, I mean, have you read uh, Hobgoblin Lives? Yes, I have. Okay. Had you read it before reading this story? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay. Because it's interesting because it's so obvious when you read it again after having read Hobgoblin Lives that, you know, the the actual Hobgoblin couldn't get his arm broken so easily. <laughs> right. It, this is just part of the whole um, ongoing... The, the problem with the ongoing stories of, uh, of the Marvel Universe is like each writer has to come in and build on top of... Uh, of of a, a mythology that's been established for decades, true. And it's like there's no there's no good way to there's no good no. way to tell to reveal who the hobgoblin is. And even that story, hobgoblin lives uh, eleven years later. It's like again, if you if you read that now, I haven't read that in a long time, but I'm sure if I read it now, it, a lot of it would feel like it's shoehorning continuity in where probably it shouldn't be. You know, honestly, yeah. I've I've never felt that way. I've always felt it was one of those amazing stories that was able to dance within continuity and make things make sense in a way that it didn't before. Okay. And it actually, and it actually pulls it all together really nicely. What is the story? I felt that way about, um, there was a, a, I think it was just a one shot when Norman Osborn comes back from the dead. The Osborn journal. Osborn journal. Yeah. 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 I read that and it was quite amazed that they were able to fit that in and like dance around continuity, like you said, and make it, make him come back in a way that's like, Oh yeah, I guess this actually could happen. And maybe I need to read The Hobgoblin Lives. I've seen that um, sort of in the cheap bins at my comic shops recently, so maybe I should pick that up and take another read at it. Yeah, I mean, as a way of concluding the story, this isn't a bad way of doing it. Um, you set up a new villain. You set up the you know the new version of the hobgoblin. You set up kind of a new status quo for how he operates. I mean, it, it's just they kind of just wanted to end it. They wanted to end what the what the hobgoblin was and, and move him into a different direction where unfortunately he would only ever be a lesser villain compared to the original. But uh, you know, it's not a bad story considering all the mess going on you know behind the scenes. This is remarkable that it ended up as readable as it is. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Now there are some things I did like that I want to point out. Um, Alan Cooperberg does the artwork here, and starting just after so page one thirty one. On, in this collection. It's just after the huge splash page of Ned Leeds being revealed as the Hobgoblin. Alan does nine panel grids for almost every page after this. Mm. And it really gives a sense of um, of just fast pace, I think. Um, things happen really quickly. Uh, and the nine panels work really well for like the Spider-Man Hobgoblin fight. Because yep. it's like you're looking at from panel to panel, panel. You're kind of jumping quickly through the pages, and a lot of action happens. It gives a sense of, of uh, sort of a frenetic kind of, um, uh, just a jumping from action to action. A lot of things happen, and even uh, there's even some pages with eight panels that are long and skinny, or they uh, he just play, plays with twelve panel pages. Part of that's I think probably because there's just too much story to tell in the amount of space that is here. But I like how he, he kind of restrained himself that way and it gave him the, the... It's a very Ditko thing to do because Ditko liked his nine panel pages. Yeah. Now, again, one of the things that makes reading through this collection a bit of a... 
it's very jarring reading is you you get to page 147 spider-man you know gets a new you know um felicia's made him some new black costumes he's so happy and it's like uh she's like hey watch the merchandise it's like don't tell me hush a hot shot show me oh i'll show you all right the next issue is when he proposes <laughs> that that was i was gonna to bring that up woman. too it's like what are they doing here it's like oh, i'll show you all right <laughs> Oh boy! Like they're not even trying to like. In, like I know that, as you said, they had a very fast turnaround. Suddenly, they made an, a, a giant decision that would haunt them for years—twenty years. It would haunt them until they figured out a way to finally get rid of the marriage. But it's just so crazy that you go from, "Oh, I'm just ha- I'm happy about I'm Spider-Man again, and I'm with Felicia, things are great," and then suddenly, boom, I'm married. What is <laughs> happening? So, um, since this is the beginning of that. Um, well, I, actually, let's go through the web of Spider-Man. I, I mentioned I'm going to play a clip from Jim Salakrup, but I'm going to save it for a little later. Let's go through these web of Spider-Man issues first. So the web of Spider-Man issues are really good. Um, it's Owsley's actually writing them. And again, we think of him very differently now, obviously, because at the time he was you know, an editor. He was kind of the young hotshot. If you read his website, you can find he has a whole thing about you know, why I don't talk about Spider-Man, where he cops to the fact that he was a young editor who was not ready to be the editor of Spider-Man books, and he kind of made some mistakes. But we obviously know him now as Christopher Priest, so he's a very different idea of who this guy is now so we now we think of him predominantly as a writer but at the time he was an editor so here he's writing you know these issues of web of spider-man and they're actually stronger than the big reveal because it's less about the hobgob and more about richard fisk it's more about what that impact does to that character and revealing him kind of as the rose and how the rose kind of came to be and again it's a lot more of an intimate portrayal it's less about the long-running you know big storyline with the hobgoblin and it's a lot more intimate portrayal and it's a lot better yeah, yeah, these two were these two were good. Now the confusing part is that these issues kind of take place at the same time as yeah. the other ones, and so in fact there are pages that are exactly the same. Like the dialogue is ex- exactly the same, but just the artist has drawn it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So, and that's I think that's really cool. When you read this, did you find man? I would totally read a comic book about Alfredo. Alfredo, yeah, he, yeah, what an interesting guy that guy is. He was a badass. Totally. Um, and I don't know anything because I haven't read the the previous volume of because uh, the epic collection isn't out yet. So I mean, I don't know. Does he appear before this? Do we know much about Alfredo? Yeah, I don't think he's as awesome as he is here. Like here, like he has a moment where, honest to God, I'm pretty sure it should have been Spider Man. Like in the panel, like on page one sixty six, the stuff he does, the flips and everything, that's Spider Man. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, there's a, a lot going on with his character. He. I, I don't. I don't know. Does he appear more later, or is this kind of the end of him? I. I. You know. I. I have to admit. I can't remember. Yeah. I don't. know. But I feel like we don't really get to see a lot more from the Rose for a while. There's eventually another storyline where he becomes Blood Rose later on. But you know, this is this is a big turning point for the way the Rose was as a character up until this point. And I mean, from a again, it's interesting. You read these Web of Spider-Man issues, and I would say that Richard Fisk is more your protagonist than Spider-Man is. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's interesting how sympathetic they make him. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you read issue... Sorry, uh, um, just for a minute. Page 174. This is classic comics. Just shouting out to the rooftops, Ned Leeds is the Hobgoblin. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think you do that, but, you know, whatever. Do you, Spider-Man? Do you? (laughs) Because it's interesting, and and this never really gets discussed anywhere except for Hobgoblin Lives, is that it's not until Hobgoblin Lives that you really that the public starts to realize that there was more than one hobgoblin. 
Like everyone just kind of goes, oh, well, you know, Jason Philip Mackendale, that's the Hobgoblin. But it's not until Hobgoblin lives where he's like, Ned Leeds was the first Hobgoblin, everybody. Go talk to her. Go talk to Betty Leeds. And everyone kind of loses their shit. But, you know, the, the actual Marvel Universe doesn't even realize there were multiple Hobgoblins. Yeah, because this is all kind of happening behind the scenes. Well, let's uh, let's back up here and talk about Web of, uh, Web of Spider-Man number 29 called Masks. Do you want to give a little description of this one? There's not. I mean, there is a lot here, but there also isn't. So really, this is what does Richard Fisk do when he finds out that the Hobgoblin has been killed or that with the Ned Leeds, the man he thought was the Hobgoblin, has been killed. And he realizes that, you know, he's going to be coming under fire as a result from this new Hobgoblin. And so it's, it's kind of, you know, a day in the life of uh, Richard Fisk. He's got his his best buddy, Alfredo. He's got his girl and things start to go really sour. You have Kingsley gets attacked. You know, which is again a big deal for that character, which again is something that they reference in Hobgoblin Lives. At the time, same time, you have Spider-Man, who you know Felicia still living yep. with him, just kind of running around doing her own thing. Um, again, you have the Rose. Everyone around him is getting murdered by this new Hobgoblin. Um, you know, two of his of uh, his you know reliable uh, bodyguards are taken out. He's starting to think that maybe he shouldn't be. In this business anymore, you have Alfredo being awesome, um, tracking down Ned Leeds, you know, Hobgoblin lairs, and then fights the new Hobgoblin, and is able to fight him, fend him off, as he races away in a vehicle, which is hilarious. While at the same time, you have Spider-Man and Wolverine fighting guys who are just fighting because Spider-Man's obviously in a dark place right after what happened. You have this issue, and at the very end, it's, you know, it's Alfredo versus the Hobgoblin. Alfredo maybe dies, and then Rose is just totally, like, it's one thing to lose all these other people, but Alfredo dying, he cannot bear that. He thinks he's lost him, and he's like, what what is what has become of me? This is my fault. What kind of monster am I? So it's it's a really affecting image of Richard Fisk. Like, you, you really feel for him as a character. You know, this guy who's been under the thumb of his father, you know, he's not the most understood but he has this one guy who really believes in him and he's his best friend and everything in his life is falling apart and you really feel for the guy but it's not a spider-man issue it's a rose issue well yeah and then the next issue is even more of a rose issue than this one is yes absolutely yeah because uh so okay just before we move on there i just want to say one one thing here um one example of salakrup trying to make these all of these spider-man stories kind of uh um, like a weekly weekly soap opera is in the amazing spider-man issue that we just read peter thinks to himself i really should get mary jane to stay with betty because betty's kind of going a little out of her mind that's right and and in this issue in web of spider-man peter calls mary jane and says hey can you stay with betty so the narrative is kind of continuing over uh through the through the different the different books True. Um, one thing I'll point out as well on issue, uh, sorry, page 153, there's just something about Alfredo. Does he not look like Matt Murdock? He does. Absolutely. With the orange hair and the glasses, the dark sunglasses. Like, especially from this time period, he really looks like Daredevil. Maybe he is Daredevil. That would explain I mean, why he awesome. can do all of the flips and stuff. And why <laughs> he's, he's so cool. Alfredo the entire time? Yes. Yes. I think someone should write that story. You know, I'd buy it. And he's doing it because he's trying to get in, get an in in the Kingpin's family so that he can take the Kingpin down from the inside. Oh, it's doable. It works as a story if you wanted to. <laughs> there we go. Okay, moving on. The second issue yeah, is much more of a Rose focus because now you actually get to see his history, um, how he eventually decided to come back to town. You, you weave in Marvel Universe continuity 
that the fact that when Vanessa convinced um, Kingpin to give up being the Kingpin, which happened uh, in Amazing Spider-Man, I believe, and then when he comes back as part of the Daredevil issues, and you see kind of what happens with uh, Richard's mom, so they're kind of weaving in continuity to kind of say, well, this is how and when Richard returned to town and actually became the Rose, because way back in the in the day, he was the I believe his name was the Schemer, right? So like. It's not like he hadn't been a supervillain in the past, but not like this. Yeah. Not with a new identity. So this is a really nice, you know, uh, recap issue to really explain how he became the Rose, how he became dedicated to kind of messing with his dad, and at the very end, the idea that he kind of says, you know, all right, you win, I'll work for you. It's a tremendously fascinating issue, and it's really, really puts Richard through his paces, and you have him like in tears during the confessional. Like it's really interesting, and yet. It's not an amazing Spider-Man issue at all, or so web of Spider-Man issue. It's it's just a Rose focus again. Yeah. In fact, it's been interesting to see this collection. So far, we've had an Iron Man story, a Wolverine story, and a Hobgoblin story, and now two Rose stories. <laughs> Spider-Man hasn't really taken center stage in anything we've been doing so far um, until the next issue here. Yeah, there are like uh, four or five different inkers in this uh in this one issue so i think that uh probably things were late and they had to they had to get things out in a timely fashion and some of the inkers are really nice i like whoever was doing number 192 and 193 kind of a a much more kind of thicker gives it a more noir kind of feel to the to the book yeah, especially on 192, um, when you look at the Hobgoblin, that really is reminiscent of the original uh, John Romita Jr. Hobgoblins. I think that inker looks like Kyle Baker. I'm pretty sure mm. that that's who's doing this page, but I'm not positive. Okay. Um, okay, so let me see. What do I have to say here? I like the, the method of being in the confessional in order to tell the story. Um, I just recorded an episode about Captain America, and in that one, Mark Gruenwald has a few of the villains in that one recount their origin stories, just thinking it to themselves in their own room in a way that they would never, ever <laughs> actually think if it were a, a real scenario. But having um, having uh, Fisk actually talking to someone and telling the story is a much more is a much better way to to, to frame your frame your flashback. So that's good, and I love just seeing the downward spir- spiral of the events that happen. Like this is this was a really good story. It was. Yep, this was great, um, and I'm glad it was included. I'm glad they put these ones in instead of the honeymoon uh, story. However fun that one was, I'm sure it wasn't nearly as good as these ones. No, I mean, yeah, it was more fun because these are obviously not exactly you know rollicking fun issues, but they're more important to an overall narrative that was being told, and you know, and to be honest, probably more interesting and, and more meaningful. Okay, so let's see here. Why don't you move on to number two ninety? Okay, so before I even talk about the issue, you know, sometimes you're just really happy, and you can't help but just you know crush. Uh, you know, a, a piece of, I don't know, I don't even know what this is. But it's a smokestack. Yeah, you know, there's nothing like crushing a smokestack when I'm happy. Like, I just, <laughs> I, I feel like the image does not in any way, I feel like it should be like, I'm so pissed off, I'm so upset. But instead it's like, I'm happy, I'm happy. Really? That's that's your happy face? The the, the following page kind of explains that, though, you know, he he is at a at a crossroads. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's He's happy, you know, because he's come to this realization about his his role as Spider-Man, which he's been wrestling with, especially in the last couple of years. It's just an awkward... It's very awkward because in the issues, 
in, in the issue immediately preceding it, like he's been in the emotional rigor. Yes, he's reaffirmed that he's Spider-Man, but we, I wouldn't say that was making him happy, happy, happy. Like, you know, a longtime member of a supporting cast just got murdered brutally. He accidentally just killed someone a week ago, but I'm happy. Like, it's almost too too much of a, you know, a, a swing the other direction. But I, I guess, yeah. you know, they got to they gotta do it. This issue, I don't really like it. Um, you know, and, and the art style by John Romita Jr., it's... It's it's a very specific style he was employing at this point in time. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't think he does a great job on the black costume either. I don't think it's really his his thing, or maybe it's just the inks on it or the colors. Like I just find not a lot of the form and definition to the uh, to the musculature. So I find that's not as enjoyable either. And I just didn't the way Michelani writes it. Like I just, he's gonna write a lot of Spider-Man. I don't think he starts off on a, on a strong point. And you end with a bananas cliffhanger. Huh. Well, so here's the thing. Maybe now is the time to play the clip that I've been teasing you about now about Jim Salakrup. Well, it was frustrating <laughs> in that, and I blame it all on myself. Essentially, what happened was a little miscommunication. Uh, Stan was working on the Spider-Man syndicated comic strip. And like with so many long-running <laughs> series, you know, eventually uh, the idea is like, well, wh what about uh, marrying uh, the hero to his uh, long, long-time girlfriend? It just seems inevitable. And particularly in the comic strip, where uh, Peter, for the most part, was only seeing Mary Jane. And so I remember very clearly I was walking through the hallowed halls of Mighty Marvel when I was <laughs> approached by the editor-in-chief, uh, Jim Shooter himself, and he said, what do I, this is how the big decisions are made. <laughs> you know, he asked me, what, what do you think of uh, Peter Parker and MJ getting married? You know, I'm a little stunned at first, and you know, I, I hadn't been the Spider-Man editor all that long yet, so I was trying to think, what can I do? with this character who appears in so many titles per month and has done, you know, like uh, one of the challenges of editing any ongoing character is, you know, how to keep it constantly interesting, true to itself, and, uh, you know, compelling to longtime readers uh, as well, you know, without making it dull and seem like it's just a rehash of the same old stuff all the time. It's, it's not easy to do. The marriage thing seemed like, uh, well, that, that opened up uh, the door to all sorts of creative possibilities. And I was specifically thinking just the idea of them, you know, that, that you know, the buildup alone. I was thinking literally years. You know, there were classic TV shows, Moonlighting, for example, with Bruce Willis and uh, Sybil Shepherd, And uh, it was a great show. Or even more recently, The X-Files, or, you know, there's tons of TV shows where, you you know, Cheers even. You know, like, there there have been all these shows and uh, others, you know, any kind of uh, uh, serialized form of entertainment. You know, it, it, it's, it's nothing new. It's, it's just, it's almost like, a, you know, one, one of the classic things where you have, you know, you know these characters who are uh, romantically interested in each other and, and you can get so much mileage out of will they or won't they etc cetera, etc cetera. but that's what I was thinking of so I mistakenly thought 
that when Jim approached me in the hallway, Jim Shooter, that he, it was just a preliminary question. Like, would I be, you know, Stan's thinking about possibly getting the characters married in the comic strip. You know, what did I think of that? You know, and I think I said, I think that's a great idea. And in my mind, I was thinking we'd get together at some other point and, and like map out <laughs> how we would get there. So I didn't think much of it after that and just went back to editing the comics. And then like a few months later, Jim came back to me and said, okay, Stan's having them married in June. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and he'd like to have it, you know, the same thing in the comics. And they could call, you know, I'm like, uh, humming, humming, humming. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was not at all what I was anticipating or expecting or it was my fault. Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I was assuming. <laughs> and I, I and and I I, I assumed one hundred percent incorrectly of how this was proceeding, and I was forgetting. Uh, you know, uh, maybe I was away from Stan too much at that point. But one of the key traits about Stan Lee is he's a very impatient guy. So when he asks a question, you know, and you, you give the answer that you know, and, and, and I did, then that. To him was okay. They're getting married. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, I don't even think uh, Peter and Mary Jane were even seeing each other in the comic books. Right. So we had to just uh, you know throw out storylines that were already planned, move things around, juggle, you oh, know, man. rewrite. Stuff. It was uh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone involved uh, did the best they could and. Uh, you know, we had a lot of fun doing it. And here's also uh, an interview from your interview with David Michelinie from your podcast, the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I hated it. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, here I get to write Spider-Man, I get to write the character that I love reading, except the character I loved reading wasn't married. <laughs> but, but I don't want to marry them. I don't want to write a married character. So, uh, and I expressed that, but Stanley was getting them married in the newspaper strip and it had been decided they're going to get married in the comics. So I had the choice of either not taking that on and going on to something else or trying to make it work. And I thought, okay, I'll do something different. I'll make it a good marriage. I won't have the bickering. I won't have the, you know, the separation, the arguing. I'll make it that, okay, here are two people who were meant for each other, that support each other, and they're happy. And I found that to be challenging but interesting. And I ended up loving writing Spider-Man for the most point. Amazing Spider-Man. I feel like that is why David Michelinie starts off saying he's so happy, but why then why do I feel so hollow still? I should be happy with with now I have my realization about Spider-Man. He's in a good place. He's not responsible for Ned Leeds' death, which he thought he was, um, and all this kind of stuff. But he still feels like something's missing. That's just an obvious way to say, boy, this guy needs to realize that he loves Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. So this is... Uh, I, I can see how everything that happens in this book is influenced by the fact that they had to rush into this marriage here. Yeah, no, for sure. It's just, I, yeah, it, it, the issue feels, uh, it does feel like a rough 
you know, kind of hodgepodge. I think the next issue is a little stronger. Uh, it still has some issues, but at least I think it, it gives Spider-Man something to do, and it feels a little bit more, you know, interesting. But in general, I would say this, you know, what three issues or so are just not that great. Yeah. And, and they feel like growing pains. They really do. Right. Well, and that's probably, I mean, Michelinie is starting out. Romita is first coming on the, actually, Romita was on this book before, right? This is oh, his yeah, second he time the around. Hobgoblin. Yeah, yeah. This is his second time around doing Spider-Man. So he's he's familiar, but also Jim Salakrup's new at his job here. And uh, so I think that there is an element of growing pains here. And this issue suffers from the fact there's not really an antagonist. They they try to do like this robbery where um, someone's stealing some artifact in a, in a church while Peter's trying to get his microscope back. And um, <laughs> you know there there's just this kind of stuff here. And the microscope is a really nice device for character development, um, but ultimately it doesn't really. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of a um, a bridging issue to to kind of speed along this whole marriage thing that's being shoehorned into the storyline. Yeah. Um, also, Peter Parker, I mean, Felicia is now out of Peter's apartment as of this issue, and we don't yes, actually see that happen. Because that's really awkward. That's really awkward when you're trying to, you know, propose to someone is when the other girl's still living with you. Ugh. And that was another thing that they had to rush and change because of the marriage so that happens in spectacular spider-man 128 and 129 um, in that one peter also tells felicia about ned Leeds' death and um and those are those are fine issues but they're not in this book so we don't actually see that happening but yeah they they had to put an axe to the whole peter felicia thing <laughs> all of a sudden like really all of a sudden and it, yeah. you, you feel it in, if you read those stories What's interesting too, I mean, so I mean, this isn't the first time Peter pr proposed to Mary Jane. Like, this is the second time he did it. Like a hundred issues earlier, but it's just an interesting framing. Like when you have the the big the big question, it, it just looks awkward. Like he's aggressively like she's not paying attention to him. He wants to talk to her. He's finally like grabbing her, and be like, "Will you marry me?" It's not and, exactly the best way. And they haven't been a couple. They are not together. No. Like all of a sudden, you want to go from not together to I realize that I need you in my life, so you have to answer this very important question right now. Yeah, it's just kind of yeah. You you feel for this. It, it, it's it's funny how it's like the whole hobgoblin mess, and now the whole the whole wedding thing is like you have a whole year's worth of Spider-Man that is being dictated by something else, and the writers are not free to kind of do their own thing. <laughs> It's interesting to imagine, like, if Stanley hadn't made, hadn't decided on this, where MJ would ever end up, you know? Because I mean, again, they had been a couple before. She'd been out of the book for a long time. Then they brought her back, and then you know, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends did an amazing job of really building a friendship between them and having it mean more than you know just what they used to be. And it's just interesting to wonder, you know, where would that relationship have gone? with other writers if there hadn't been a marriage forced in. I mean, a lot of people have said they hate They hate the fact that that was kind of wasted on the character, and we're seeing the pains of that here, obviously. And a lot of writers did really great things with it, but it's just interesting to imagine what would Mary Jane have been, and what would, like, whenever you have an adaptation now, for the most part, you have an MJ. Now, obviously, the Andrew Garfield books kind of 
or sorry, movies kind of eschewed that and use Gwen instead. But for most people, they think of Mary Jane. They think of Spider-Man. They think of, you know, uh, Mary Jane is his lowest lane. Like, she's the love interest. But really, she doesn't have to be and hasn't always been. It's just we got so used to it because of this marriage that got foisted upon us. Yeah, I feel like, though, because her first appearance was, you know, the blind date that she was set up for that they had been hinting at for months, um, like, that's that's how she was defined and they never really knew how to break her out of that um she will always be forever just kind of the love interest and even right now when peter and parker when peter parker and mary jane are not together in the comics now that's still on the forefront of everyone's minds yeah she is i don't know if she's fated or destined to be um a love interest for peter parker but um, that's kind of all, all she's ever going to be, unfortunately, I think. Mm-hmm. So in this issue, I don't know that we really need to talk about it anymore. So you want to move on to 291? Yeah, 291. Um, absolutely gorgeous opening shot. Yep. I love that shot of MJ. It's just stunning. Yep, yep. This was, uh, let's see, John Romita still with Vinnie Coletta on inks. And I'm not usually a huge Vince Coletta fan. But yeah, he... Does, he does a good job in this issue. Yeah. Uh, now, I will say, that's probably the highlight for me. Because uh, then you have MJ, you know, kind of takes off to go with the family. You have Peter kind of wondering what to do now, what this means. And then you have um, the return of, you know, uh, Alistair Smythe as the upgraded new Spider Slayer. And uh, unfortunately, this is where John Amita Jr. doesn't always do great tech. And that's how I feel about the Spider Slayer. It just <laughs> looks weird. Yeah, awkward. I don't really like it. I don't like the design work. I just find it's it's one of the things he can't do that well. Some people can do amazing technology, and he he just can't. It's just his weak spot, and that's how I felt here. Yeah, it is a very out of place design. Just even the way that uh, just the, the I guess the coils in his arms and stuff like that. Just uh, it's it's odd. Now it does though. I feel like this type, sort of tech, I wonder if he was going for a Steve Ditko feel, because I could imagine Steve Ditko drawing a robot that looks like this. Yeah, but it would look better. <laughs> Maybe. But I think that he was trying to trying to build on what the Spider Slayers looked like back in the 60s and, yeah. and kind of do something that was reminiscent of that. There's not a lot to this issue, though. It's a lot about, again, in fighting the Spider Slayer, you have MJ coming to some realizations of her own peter trying to you know go be with her and comfort her and go to pittsburgh at the very end so i mean there's not actually a lot of meat here but you're getting a lot of the the kind of the internal character drama as opposed to it's not as plot heavy it's much more character centric so it's a lot easier to kind of breeze through some of these issues because there's not a lot really going on uh we do get to meet mary jane's sister gail Mm -hmm. Who is in jail, and that's an interesting thing. There, we 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 slowly get through the '80s. We get to learn a lot about Mary Jane's family history because uh, we never learned that before. And and I think DeFalco is one of the first people that kind of explores the fact oh, that absolutely. Mary Jane has kind of a troubled past. So yeah, we yeah. can we can go on to nine uh, two ninety two here. This is the the second part of the Spider Slayer series, and Peter and Mary Jane try to help Mary Jane's sister in Pittsburgh, and. Um, but the spider slayer, the spider slayer actually follows them to Pittsburgh, and you know does a fair amount of damage. And Spider Man has to show up in Pittsburgh, so we get a a lot of uh, Pittsburgh notable buildings and yes. bridges and all that kind of stuff. The stadium and yeah, all um, the landmarks. Yeah, all the landmarks. That's it. You get to see all of those. 
And in the end, through the whole family ordeal, Mary Jane realizes that Peter's actually a, a good guy to be married to. Um, so she says yes. <laughs> so there you go. I do I do like that last panel of her saying, I'll marry you. Like, it's, it's pretty cute. Like, you know... He, it's I do like panels like that. They really emphasize like there's not actually like there's not a lot of lines there, but it's just it's very simple and effective. This you know beautiful little beautiful woman is just saying that she's going to marry someone. She's so happy. Yep, it's a really nice panel. Yep, yep, yeah. I mean these these two issues were just there in order to get us to this next annual. So which, which cover do you like more? Um, I have to say that I like the Spider-Man cover over the Peter Parker one. Interesting. I prefer the Peter Parker one. Why is that? Um, I don't know. I mean, first of all, it's more likely to be an actual wedding. Um, and I just, I, 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 I don't know. There's something about it. I, I find I don't need the superheroes on the cover. I feel like it detracts. I, there's something about just having the supporting cast in the background. It really works for me. Well, I, the reason why I like it is I don't like the way that John Romita has drawn the supporting cast. It just, they don't have any weight to the character, to, the, to the, any of the lines or anything like that. They're just kind of static Whereas mm. the 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 villains, even though it's like this is a ridiculous heroes versus villains kind of pose, it just catches my eye better. Mm. So, okay, fair yeah. enough. Yep, exactly. In fact, the Spider-Man one is the one that I own. I don't have the Peter Parker one. It's interesting. Obviously, they wouldn't do it, but it's interesting on the cover that he's not wearing his black costume. Aha! Let me play a clip of Jim Salakrup talking about that. In the early bit of Spider-Man comics on the splash page, you know, there was almost a Spider-Man logo, which was that round web shape, you know, like the, mm -hmm. the spider signal that he hardly ever uses. Right. You know, it's, a, it's, it's just a, a circle with the eyes and the webs, of, you know, the design of his mask. And uh, it, it, he used it as a, a logo on page one. And uh, for the wedding, I couldn't resist... Uh, Making instead of a circle a heart shape. Oh yeah, and then and using that on the yeah you know, I didn't do Marvel hadn't done too many variant covers, and I I, I couldn't resist I figured because again as I said before, the newsstand market was still uh, pretty important, so we figured we'd do one cover for the newsstand, which was you know Spider-Man by John Romita in the red and blue costume, which I wanted to go back to all the time anyway, right. even though in the story he's still wearing <laughs> Oh yeah, I didn't even notice that. White costume. Yeah. Well, I think we had a, a dream sequence or something where he has the red and blue costume on. And, uh, and of course in the comic strip he always had the red and blue costume on. He never had the black and white costume right. on. Considering I haven't listened to your Salakup interview yet, I'm teeing up some great clips. <laughs> Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. <laughs> I like this issue. I imagine that he probably, you know, this is by David Michelini. Well, I think it was actually just scripted by Michelini. Um, okay. The, the, it was, oh, yeah. It was, it was written by Shooter. Shooter. Yeah. Here's another clip from your interview with David Michelini from your Comic Shenanigans podcast. Well, I did a plot. I was trying to, again, I try to do stuff differently. I'm, I'm not a push-the-envelope kind of guy. I don't come with, with, with wild, off-the-cuff, off you know, out-of-this-world, from-left-field stuff generally. But I try to be different, at least a little different. So I came up with a plot that had uh, Spider-Man 
walking along at one point of the, and, and talking to someone and we switch angles and I was talking to Uncle Ben, who's of course been dead for many years, about, you know, he's not, no, doesn't know if he's ready for marriage, is he mature enough, if he's gone through stuff. And another point, he's, he's talking to uh, Gwen Stacy, who's also been dead, uh, and it's like, you know, about, he doesn't want to marry Jane, put in danger, and all these worries and stuff. And it, it turns out at the end, we find out he's, he has a concussion from a fight early on. Over the, the story opens with a fight or is a previous issue or something. And that he was hallucinating. He was basically talking to himself, trying to work out his fears and worries and concerns about this huge step. And he would come to the conclusion that, yes, Mary Jane's ready for it. I'm ready for it. This is a good thing. And he would get married. So when I turned it in, uh, Jim Shooter took me into his office and he said he liked the plot. It was a good plot. He appreciated it. I was trying to do something different. But <clears throat> this story was going to get a lot of publicity. And there would be a lot of, quote, civilians, unquote, reading this story. And they, he thought they needed something more standard to uh, appeal to those people who weren't familiar, didn't read Spider-Man all the time. So I turned the plot at his request over to him, and he did the plot, and then I wrote the script for it. So it, it wasn't the story I had planned on telling, but it was a more commercial story, and it sold well. And that's the story of that. It, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's simple, it's effective, it's interesting because it does feel like it's you know, a little bit later than, you know, the proposal, you have these characters actually like each other a little bit more now and they're with each other. But, it, you know, it's a very effective issue about kind of just showing what a wedding is like. Like, yeah, there's some super heroics he does as well. They're fighting Electro. But a lot of what they face is just the, their own past, their own, you know, obviously you have Peter with Gwen and, you know, how he's supposed to move on and how he feels about that. Like, it feels like a very human interaction. And the, these two people who want to get married but also have the ghosts of their own past. And, you know, you have this evidence by a bunch of different things. You have them having their bachelor and bachelorette parties. You have Spider-Man having his own kind of, uh, his nightmare about what might happen to MJ, obviously dealing with the, you know, what happened to Gwen, which is, which makes sense. You have very Parker luck that Peter Parker almost misses his own wedding. Like, it just feels yeah. very natural to these characters as much as, you know, the wedding itself was definitely something that suddenly showed up and they just had to do. I thought this was an extremely effective way of putting it all together and making it work and actually making you buy into it. And the art was actually pretty good as well by Paul Ryan, which, again, was very clean, um, you know, very cleanly um, got across the, the notion of what it wanted to do. And it's it's just it's a nice story. It's very much a feel-good story. You, you really feel for these people, but there's nothing undue about it. There's nothing that makes it this giant epic thing more than it's just this moment in these two people's lives where they decide they want to get married, and there's some trials and tribulations on the way to the altar, which is normal, but it just feels like a very human interaction, and this is what Spider-Man's supposed to be. It's like, you know, if one of us became Spider-Man, it doesn't change the fact that our, other, our regular part of our lives would still be human. Now, I really like Paul Ryan. Um, I love his work on Fantastic Four. And uh, and and this is some of his very early stuff. In fact, this might even be his first his first issue with Marvel. I can't remember, but um, he yeah, you've said it. He he's great at storytelling. He is great at clean layouts, so you know exactly what's going on. And that's so important because this entire issue is basically talking heads. Mm -hmm. That's and you need to have a really strong artist who is. Um, who is very comfortable in doing just talking scenes where there's no action. 
and and he does it very well. Oh, absolutely. The the one thing that bugged me in this issue is Mary Jane's mystery fellow who's trying to steal her away and with with glamour and big cars and trips to France and stuff like that, and she mm. actually sort of considers it. I I just felt like she shouldn't be uh, that easily swayed. I mean, I know this is all happening in like the span of like a month or something like that, and like they they haven't even told May um, and Anna. Like they they tell their their aunts in this issue that they're going to be married, and then they get married a few pages later. Yeah, I mean they they had to give conflict from both sides, and right. it was much easier to find conflict from Peter's side because obviously he has the specter of a dead girlfriend that will do it. Yeah, but whereas MJ doesn't really have that, so they had to kind of manufacture something to give her a credible reason to kind of think about not doing it. Um, it's interesting that the one thing she doesn't really ever think about is, oh yeah, you know, any day my husband could die, which will become <laughs> the theme of that character forever. Like yeah. for the next twenty years, how many stories do we get where MJ just can't deal with the fact that he, you know, puts his life on the line every day? Yet at their wedding, the one time where you really could have built that into the story and have it be an honest to god human reaction. They don't do it. They come up with this other thing, this this other suitor instead, instead of the one thing which ends up being the driving force, unfortunately, of what drives a lot of that character's development over the course of the next 20 years. Yeah. Well, in the next, it's the very next issue, Spider-Man dies. <laughs> so there you, it happens right away. Yeah. Okay, one more thing about this one, or a couple more things about this one. So the wedding dress was actually designed by um, a famous designer, Willie Smith. And Willie Smith makes a cameo appearance in this book, in this issue. Nice. And unfortunately, Willie Smith passed away. He died of AIDS just like a couple of months um, or just before the publication of this story and before the wedding. So he never actually got to see the wedding dress like fully realized. Oh, wow. Yeah. I feel like there's also a lot of um, topical references that really date oh, this yes. book like they talk about these guys being as a uh, solid couple as princess die and and whoever i can't remember her husband uh, or charles prince charles and lady die except this is before princess diana died she would die like 10 years after this plus they got divorced um oh yeah if they got divorced and then she then she died in the car crash and and then like things like they reference the pan am building which is no, no longer called the pan am it's park avenue and you know things like that and just her wedding dress itself is very of its era but i did like that no villains tried to interrupt the wedding now there are a lot of wedding issues in comics and usually something happens that uh, like a villain attacks and i think wasn't it the was it um peter or was it reed and sue's wedding where like every villain attacked yeah absolutely yeah well, and i guess the, the the closest you get to this obviously is you have the nightmare you know, that's really the the most you the closest you get is the nightmare that Peter has the night before the wedding. Right. Oh well, yeah. So I'm glad that the story ended up being fairly decent, and uh, a really cool bonus feature in the back is that they've included the storyline from the newspaper comic strip. So if you want to see how P Peter and Mary Jane got uh, together and got married in the comic strip, it's all included there, which is really cool. Yeah, and most people will not have ever seen that. So that's actually really a, a nice special little thing to have in there. Yeah, it's really cool. And so I have, um, I got to speak with Larry Lieber about his work on this because he was the artist uh, on Spider-Man 
uh, at this time. So I think I'll see if I can play a little clip from Larry about the comic strip. They, yeah, I remember them getting married. And I think it, it, did it happen at the same time it happened in the comic book? Yes, they tried to time that so that it would happen at exactly the same time. Yeah, yeah. I seem to remember that. Oh, gosh, that's a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I just was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that, if you remember um, the, no, the story at all. No, I don't know anything about it. Okay. Except I drew it. I, I don't remember the details of it. I remember after they got married, they had a little dog. And I can't even remember the name of the dog. <laughs> okay, I don't remember that either. Yeah, for a while they had this little dog. It was very cute. I liked drawing the dog. I, I don't remember anything about the marriage itself or that I can recall. Um, I just remember that after a while they were married, and I was drawing them as a married couple. And I also had to try to remember for a while that... Uh, if she's married, she ought to be wearing a wedding ring. So right. that was something new to put on her finger. But half the time, I probably forgot. And as the years <laughs> went on, we stopped showing the wedding ring. You know. Yeah. So, uh, and 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 the strip has become so small. I don't think anybody would notice it. Yeah. You know? Right. Unless they have a magnifying glass. So this is the end of this week's episode. Thank you all for listening. And like I said, we're going to talk about Craven's Last Hunt at the end of October. So stay tuned for that episode. Um, it's already recorded. I'm just waiting for the J.M. DiMatteis interview. And it'll be worth the wait, I promise. See you next time.